imagine it's not often that you hear a speech in a public speaking class your freshman year of college that has the power to stick with you for 14 years, but it happened for me. I was sitting in this class, and a girl was getting up to give a speech, and we had to give speeches about things that we were intimately aware of. It had to be an informative speech about something we knew very well, something that had happened to us personally, something we had experienced personally, something that was part of who we are. And so she gave her speech on tearing your ACL. And so with the structure of the, the topic, I knew that she had to have at least, at one point in time, torn an ACL. And so she gives us all the details about how people tear their ACLs and why people tear their, tear their ACLs and who is more likely to tear their ACL. And then she starts talking about her own personal history. And she was a basketball player at the school who played basketball her entire life. In her freshman year of high school, in the middle of the season, she had an accident and tore her ACL out for the rest of the season. She worked really hard to come back. Her sophomore year of high school, she comes back. She's playing basketball again. In the middle of her season, she tears her ACL. She works hard again, puts all the effort in, all the time, all the rehabilitation. She makes it through her junior season, gets to her senior season, the the final season of her high school career, and tears her ACL. And then about... Three months after giving the speech in the middle of our class on tearing her ACL in her freshman year of college playing basketball for Truett McConnell, she tears her ACL and is out for the season. And from what I understand, just didn't play basketball again. Now, I have not often thought of my ACL. I know it's there. I know what an ACL does. At least I have a basic understanding of what my ACL does. I know that it's bad to tear your ACL. But on a day-to-day basis, I don't think about my ACL because my ACL is doing its job. I imagine that this woman thinks about her ACL quite often. When the body starts to function improperly, you become heightenedly aware of how necessary a little piece of ligament is for the rest of everything that happens. When it comes to understanding our identity and who we are in Jesus and what Jesus has done, the first and most important thing about who we are is that we belong to Christ. That's the core of our identity and the core of who we are. Next, as we've seen over the past several weeks, we're supposed to think about our identity in the body of Christ. That we belong to the church, that we belong to Jesus in this context that he's given us that is the corporate church. But then we also have our own individual identity in Christ and the calling to pursue individually a deeper walk in that identity. But if we're one body with many parts, as we've discussed over the last several weeks, for the body to function, for the church to properly reflect the glory of God and the beauty of the gospel, each individual member of the church has to take that calling very seriously and very personally. Last week, we looked at the beauty of the diversity in the life of the church and how God has gifted each person in the church individually and uniquely to fill a certain role and that without each of those individuals, the church wouldn't be able to be exactly what it is. And over the next two weeks, we're going to look at the responsibility that comes with that diversity and how each individual member of the church needs to grow strong in order that the body of Christ might be strong. 
And so we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. And the majority of our text is going to come from verse 13 through verse 24. But I'd like to back up when I read and catch the last two verses that we talked about last week. And so beginning in chapter 4, verse 11, this is the word of God. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And here's our text for today. Until we attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now I say this to testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practices of every kind of impurity. But that's not the way that you learned in Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father, we do thank you and praise you for your grace and your mercy. And God, we thank you that you love us with a love that is inexpressible. And that you have saved us with a grace deeper and more beautiful than we could ever imagine. Father, we thank you that you have given us gifts, but also we thank you that you have made us new, that for anyone who's trusted in Christ for salvation, that no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, all of that has been forgiven and put in the past so that we can put on new clothes, so that we can walk a new walk, so that we can live a new life covered by your grace, strengthened by your mercy, and propelled by your righteousness. And so, fathers, we talk about the call to Christian maturity. Remind us that this is not a gift for some sort of Christian elite, but this is the call for every single man, woman, and child who has put their faith in Christ to grow stronger in you, in your grace and mercy, and that through our individual strength, the body of Christ, the kingdom of God, will grow stronger as we function as we are called to so the body can properly function as it is called to. And so be with us. Lead us, guide us, and teach us. And may everything that we do and everything that we say bring honor and glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. It must be weird to be a baby. I know I was a baby at one point in time. At least I'm pretty sure of it. There are pictures of it. I don't remember anything about being a baby. And so the only way that I understand how babies perceive things is just from an outsider's point of view, from watching my kids, from watching other babies, And it has to be strange for them. And maybe it's good that we don't remember what that feels like because as a baby, you are completely vulnerable. 
you're completely helpless, and for a significant portion of your babyhood, you are completely immobile. And so you are 100% at the mercy of the bigger people around you, and you have no say-so in anything that happens. And so if a baby wants to move, the only way a baby gets to move is if somebody picks the baby up and moves it from one place to the other. If a baby does not want to move, eh, sorry, because if somebody else wants the baby to move, all they have to do is pick the baby up and move the baby wherever they want to go, and it has to be a really frustrating experience. And when Jesus met with a man named Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Jesus gives us a little bit of an insight not only into the process of being saved and what it means to enter the kingdom of God, but he teaches us something very important about how we enter the kingdom of God, about how God saves us. Because Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says, what is it that we have to do to be saved? What do I have to do to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, well, you have to be born again. And that's a really weird thing to say to somebody. And so Nicodemus reacted like you would expect somebody to react who has never heard that language before. He says, what do you mean you have to be born again? How can somebody that's really old be born again because I'm closer to death than I am to birth, and so you're going to have to flesh this out for me. And now looking back with everything that we have, we understand what Jesus was saying and what Jesus was teaching. That when we trust in Christ for salvation, that he brings in new life. But there's also something very frustrating about that. Because Jesus is saying that no matter how old you are, when you first trust Christ for salvation, when you first enter into the kingdom of God, you don't do so as a fully grown person, but you enter the kingdom of God as a child. You're born again. And there's something very frustrating about that. Because especially as we grow into adulthood, as we grow into maturity, we start to feel like we've got things worked out. We start to feel like we have a better understanding of how the world works. We start to feel like we understand how things are supposed to take place. But then when we trust in Christ, there's a certain degree of our life that feels like we're starting back at square one because in a certain understanding, we are. We see in Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus that the Christian life requires growth. That the Christian life requires maturation, that we don't simply step out of sin into the other side of grace, completely perfected and ready for everything that we need. It's a process. The writer of Hebrews discusses this in chapter 5, verse 11 through 14. He says, About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The writer of Hebrews was eventually say that you need to move on from the elementary doctrines and go to the deeper things in Christ. And so the frustration that the writer of Hebrews had for his audience is that there is something that's not happening in the life of these Christians that should be. The writer says, you should be growing. You should know more than you know. You should be doing more than you're doing, but you've been content to remain spiritually a child. You still want to live on milk when you need to be eating the solid food, when you need to be going on to the deeper truths and serving Christ in a more intimate and active way, but because you haven't pursued that, you are still 
child in your faith. And so we see in this passage that there's a frustration when we don't grow. That growth in Christ is a commandment and something that we're not suggested, but something that we are commanded by Jesus and commanded by the power of Scripture to take part in. And when we look at Ephesians and Hebrews together, we see that for Paul and for the writer of Hebrews, that the path to Christian maturity is to grow in the knowledge of the Word of God and in the knowledge of the Son of God. Remember, the writer of Hebrews there said, some, you needed somebody to teach you again the basic principles because you need to be able to go to the deeper truths of God's Word. And Paul, in chapter 4 of Ephesians, says a very similar thing as he's encouraging the church to grow. He says that, that all of this is given to us so that we can attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. Paul says that the road to spiritual adulthood, the road to spiritual maturity, is to grow deeper in our knowledge of the Son of God. To grow deeper in our knowledge of the Word of God. To understand better who God is and how God has saved us and know deeply the things about Jesus Christ and what He's done for us and what He calls us to do. And Paul says that the goal of all of this, the goal of being dedicated to God's Word, to knowing Christ deeper, is that we would come to mature manhood or mature adulthood in Christ. It says, to the measure, to the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves. Paul says the goal of the Christian life, the goal of the Christian walk, is to develop and move past being spiritual children so that we can grow up and be adults in Christ, so that we can be mature in our faith, in our understanding of who God is, so that we can do mature and adult things in the life of the church and in the work of Christ. But why does this really matter? This feels like it could be an option. That maybe we could have some sort of spiritual neverland where if you don't want to grow up, if you want to remain a child, if you want to be the lost boys and girls of the Christian faith, then you could, and it shouldn't be a big deal because after all, we're saved by grace through faith, not on anything that we do. And so what difference does it make if we decide that we just want to stay with the elementary things and the childish things of our faith? Verse 14 tells us, Paul says that we do this so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by every human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Paul uses these metaphors to describe what happens to children. When you're a baby, someone else can pick you up and move you wherever they want to go. When you're a small child and you're learning how to walk, the slightest change in the breeze can make you fall. The slightest stub of your toe can trip you over. That it doesn't take much to take you off your course. And so Paul says that when we are spiritually children, that we are capable of being picked up and moved by any wind and any change and anything that comes along. And I love the, the illustrations that Paul uses there saying that we could be tossed to and fro by the waves. And you get this picture of a small floating object out in the sea being moved around, not by its own volition, but by wherever the waves see fit to take it. It says, carried about by every wind of doctrine and by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. What Paul is teaching us here is that the world is full of people 
and ideologies and principalities that are waiting to pick up the children of God and to move them wherever they see fit. And if we remain young in our faith, if we remain children in our knowledge of Christ, then it's a much easier thing to do. Our defense over what Paul is saying could happen to us in our faith, our defense about being moved back and forth wherever the winds and waves want to take us, our defense for that is to be too big to move. Our defense of that is to be too deeply rooted in the knowledge of Christ to be toppled by the waves and to set our anchor so firmly and so securely in the Word of God that we can stand firm against anything that comes our way. And a lot of times we can think about this, the spiritual maturity and the spiritual immovability as being a gift for just a certain group of people in the life of the church. That there are the mature believers, the older believers, or the, the leaders in the church, and they're the ones who grow deep in their faith, and then the rest of us just try to cling on and hold on and grab what we can. But what Paul is telling us here is that this maturity of the faith is attainable by all and that it's crucial to our walk with Christ. And in fact, it's a commandment. But there's only one place that this can happen. There's only one place that this maturity can be achieved. There's a myth, and I think it's a particularly American myth, but I could be wrong, that you can have a lone wolf, grow-at-home Christian. Our faith, our religion has been a thing that, I don't know how long this has been going on, but just with the American ideal of individualism and I can do it on my own, our faith and our religion has become something that we can look at and say, you know what, I can do this by myself. I've got a Bible. I've got my Bible app where I can see a thousand different translations in the palm of my hand. I can listen to worship music on my phone. I have everything that I need to be able to do this Christian life all on my own. But the reality is we can't. We need the church to grow to full maturity in Christ. And the good news is, is you don't have to take my word for it. Listen again to the writer of Hebrews, this time in chapter 10, verse 19 through 25. He says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The writer of Hebrews says, Since, if you have trusted in Christ for salvation, then you have been brought near. Using similar language that we've seen Paul use in Ephesians, he says, You were once far off, but now you have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Now you've been saved by God's grace. When at one point in time you couldn't come into the presence of God, now Jesus has opened the curtain so that you can come boldly before the throne of grace without fear, without shame, or without guilt. You can be in the presence of God. And he says, because of that, you have the ability to have this strength and this steadfastness that comes not having anything blow you back or forth, but to be able to be rooted in the truth of God's word. 
And he said, because of all that, we can hold fast to that confession of our hope without wavering because God is faithful. And the outpouring of that is by keeping one another accountable, by stirring one another up to love and to good works, and by not neglecting to meet together. The writer of Hebrews connects the growth of our faith, the steadfastness of our faith, the depth of our walk with Jesus, He connects those things to the community of the church, saying that it's our job to encourage one another and stir one another up to these good works and this deeper maturity and not neglecting to meet together, but to come together regularly and to be a part of the community that God has brought us into. If we look at chapter 4 of Ephesians, Paul gives us this picture of maturity in the context of the church. Remember last week as we looked through verses, what was it, 7 through 13 or 7 through 11, we see Paul tell us about the diversity of the gifts and that our giftedness and our salvation is not just for us, but it's for use in the church. And Paul continues to say that we've been given these gifts of the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and pastors and teachers, that it's the purpose of the clergy and the ministers of the church to equip the body of Christ, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry and the building up of the body. And that all of that is for the purpose of helping us all to reach the unity of our faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and to reach maturity. And so both Paul and the writer of Hebrews puts Christian maturity and Christian growth inside the context of the church because they know, as well as we see all throughout Scripture, that God's people are never meant to be alone. The first thing we see in all of Scripture that is not good is that man in the garden was by himself, and God said it's not good for man to be alone, and that proclamation never changed. That it's not good for the children of God to be alone, but that we need each other to encourage us and lift us and build us up and to help us reach maturity, just like other people need us to help them and come alongside them and to equip them and to help them grow into maturity as well. Eugene Peterson says that the church is the textured context in which we grow up in Christ to maturity. It's in the church that young Christians, no matter what their age may be, but that young Christians are able to be rightly taught the Word of God. It's in the church that all of us can see Christianity put into action. It's where we come to be taught and encouraged and loved and corrected and equipped for every good work until we attain the unity of the faith and the full knowledge of Christ and reach that maturity on our own. To paraphrase something I've heard my wife say several times, it may take a village to raise a child, but it takes a church to raise a Christian. We need our older brothers and sisters in Christ to come alongside of us and to help us grow and to teach us the deeper truths and to help us to study God's word and to know how to pray and to know how to serve. And just like the Bible says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. That is the absolute truth about life in the church, that as we grow and as we strengthen and as we mature, then we encourage and help other people grow and mature. And as other people grow and mature and grow stronger in their faith, then that helps us to be able to grow stronger in our faith as well. In verse 15 through 17, Paul says that we have the risk of being tossed back and forth. But in 15, he gives us the opposite of that. 
He says, rather than all of those other things, we should be speaking the truth in love, and that we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is, with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Paul shows a contrast between those two ways of living. On one side, it's being able to be tossed around by every wind of doctrine and by every wave and every circumstance that comes. And Paul says that the opposite of that is speaking truth in love, growing in every way into Christ, and functioning properly as the body of God. Paul tells us that the opposite of immaturity and instability is community. The opposite of immaturity and instability is not simply stability and maturity. The opposite of instability and immaturity is community. The body is strong so that the members can grow strong. And when the members mature and grow strong, the body grows stronger. And so the more that we grow individually, the more the body is able to be strong, the more the church is able to be strong. And the stronger the church is, the easier it is for people to grow up inside that context and mature. And it's this amazing, beautiful cycle, just like everything that we see in the life of Christianity is that the more we do one thing, the stronger something else grows. And the stronger that other thing grows, the more that we're able to grow more. And it's the same thing for the church. That the church is strong because it's a group, because it's a corporate body with all of these different people. And we stand, like the writer of Hebrews says, in the midst of a cloud of witnesses, of brothers and sisters of Christ who have come before us and walked where we walked and read what we've read and sung what we've sung. And so they've given us this firm foundation that we're able to stand on. And then we have this body of the church that when you are saved by grace, that you don't have to figure this out all by yourselves, but there are brothers and sisters in Christ who are around you now, who again have walked where you're now walking, who can come alongside you and help to show you the way and help to raise you up in the grace and truth of Jesus Christ and to deepen your knowledge of who God is. And then as that happens and as you grow and as you mature, you become part of that cloud of witnesses. You become part of that body of Christ and you're able to look and see other people who are walking where you once walked. And you're able to come alongside of them and say, this is where you go and this is what you see and this is how you learn and this is how you grow. What we see in this passage is that Christian maturity comes from Christ through the church of Christ, to the people of Christ, by the knowledge of Christ, to build up the body of Christ. And when that's all done well, we'll be able to exist and radiate the glory of Christ. And so each one of us, if you've trusted in Jesus for salvation, if you've been baptized into the body of Christ, then we all have a call to pursue maturity within the context and within the community of the church of Jesus Christ. And so that begins by just being a part of a church. To be a part of a church, whether it's here at Redeeming Grace Community Church or any other church in the community or around the world, to be a part of the church of God and to be a part of a local community, or to use Seal Adams' term, the local expression of the body of Christ. And to build relationships there. To build friendships there. To be around your brothers and sisters and to watch and to learn and to listen and then to participate. 
We also get involved in other small groups and Bible studies. Part of the reasons why we're having these community groups that are launching in just a week and a half now is so that we can meet again as the body of Christ in people's homes to be able to not only study Scripture, to not only to be able to grow deeper in our walk with Christ through the Word of God, but to share our burdens with one another, to share our needs with one another, to share our joys with one another, to get to know one another more deeply and more intimately, and to celebrate what God is doing. That maturity comes through serving in the life of the church. To not simply come and take, but we come together to give. And we remember last week we saw that God has gifted each and every one of us individually in some way, shape, form, or fashion. And so to come and to be a part of the church, to realize what your gifts are, and then find a place to be able to use them, not only for your benefit, but for the benefit of the church, for the benefit of the community around the church, and then for the glory of God. But none of us have permission to stay where we are. Each and every one of us have the call to continue pursuing maturity every day of our lives. And the best place and the only place where we can do that well is in the context of the church of God because we are not saved to simply be individuals but many parts of one body growing and working and strengthening one another. Until one day Christ returns and makes all things right and all things new and brings us that unity of our faith and the full knowledge of Christ. Now as we continue moving through this passage in verse 17 through 24, if we just to read this without remembering the context, we find Paul telling the Ephesian Christians not simply to come to a maturity, not simply to act more like Christians, but to basically have a full-on identity crisis. And if we read this passage and we forget who Paul is writing to, it can be very easy to think of this as an object lesson where Paul is saying, don't be like these people over here, you need to be something different. And that happens a lot of times in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, especially about the Gentiles. The Gentiles were were the non-Jewish people living in that area. And so we see several times in Scripture where, for instance, Jesus, when he's teaching the people listening to him in the Sermon on the Mount how to pray, he says to this predominantly Jewish audience, you shouldn't be like the Gentiles because they pray with all these different words thinking that if they can be creative and expressive in their language, then they'll be heard more clearly by God. But don't be like them. Don't have this big expression. But when you pray, go and hide away and pray in secret to the God who hears you in secret and who will bless you and reward you in secret. The writer of Hebrews does the similar thing. In Hebrews chapter 6, we see the writer of Hebrews talking about these, this group of people who had become a part of the body of Christ. And they'd gone through all the motions. They took communion. They were even baptized. They went to all the worship gatherings. And then they started to fall away because they were never really a part of the community of God. And the writer of Hebrews says, don't be like them. That's not the kind of person that you are because I know that your salvation is genuine and true. And so don't act like these people that you don't belong to, but act like the body of Christ who has been saved by Christ. And so we can read Paul's exhortation here to not be like the Gentiles with that mindset. Thinking that Paul is saying, here's this group of people and you shouldn't be like these other people, but you should be like who you are in Christ. But we have to remember that Paul is writing to this church in Ephesus made up of Christians who are Gentiles. Paul is writing to Gentile Christians and he's telling his audience to no longer walk like 
think like or act like themselves. They are the object lesson. And so he says you should no longer walk like yourself. You must no longer walk like who you used to be in the futility of your minds because you were darkened in your understanding and alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that you had due to the hardness of your heart. You had become callous and you had given yourselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That's who you were, but it's not who you are now. The life that once belonged to the Ephesians was distant, it was far off, and it's contrary to who they were called to be in Christ. It's who they were, and it's also who we were as well. That each and every one of us had the same background. Each and every one of us had the same life as these Ephesian Christians. This is who we are. The Bible is very clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That none of us seek after God, but all of us were children of wrath. All of us were following our own desires to various degrees, but it was true about each and every one of us. And so the commandment here for the Ephesians and the commandment here for us reading this passage today is very clear. When you encounter Christ, you don't walk like you used to walk. When you are saved by the grace and mercy of God, you don't think like you used to think. You don't speak like you used to speak. Because Paul, and I love it when Paul uses the word but because something good is always coming. He says, this is who you used to be, but verse 20 says, but that is not the way that you learned in Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth as in Jesus. If you have encountered the grace and mercy of Christ, then all of this is no longer true about you at all. It may have been who you were, but it's not who you are now because Jesus has saved you by grace. Jesus has changed you from who you are from the inside out, and you might not feel it, and you might not look any different, but you are a new creation, and the old has passed, and the new has come, and so you don't have to live like this anymore. Paul shows us here that the way of Christ is counter to every culture. It's radically different from who we are in every circumstance. The Gentiles at Ephesus found this out very clearly. But also so did the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. So does every man, woman, child from every place, every ethnicity, every background, every, no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, what we find is that when we trust in Jesus for salvation, that we are given something and we are brought into a family, we are brought into a kingdom that is radically different than anything else we've ever experienced and anything else that we've ever seen. The call of the Christian life isn't to do better. Paul doesn't come and say, you were kind of bad before, and so now you just need to be a better person. You need to be a better man or be a better woman and just get your stuff together. The call of a Christian and this idea of Christian maturity is about walking away from, what's held, from what once held us in bondage and walking into what has set us free. In 1 Corinthians 13, as Paul's talking about love, he also talks about maturity. He says, the love never ends. And as for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial passes away. And then he says this. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up foolish, childish ways. 
Paul says, I didn't just grow up. I walked away from the things that were childish. I walked away from the things that were immature. I walked away from the things that were unstable. And that's what Paul is calling us to do here in the book of Ephesians as well. Not simply to change what you do, but to realize that Christ has changed who you are and that you're no longer bound by those things in your past, but you've been set free to walk in the newness of life. In verse 20 and 21, he says that you've learned this in Christ. You've heard about him and you were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul shows us that Jesus shines a light on the lies of who we think we are and shows us who we really are. Because as Drew reminds us every week, it can be very easy to define ourselves by our sin. It can be very easy to divine ourselves by our history and by our background and who we used to be. But Paul reminds us that that's not how God defines us. That if we've trusted in Christ for salvation, that God does not define us by who we are and what we've done and who we think that we're supposed to be, but God defines us by our relationship with Christ and calls us nothing but his sons and daughters. And as we grow in the truth of Christ, we begin to realize that. We begin to realize that our identity doesn't lie in who we have been and what we have done, but what Christ has done for us. And that gives us the freedom to walk out of the bondage, out of the shame, out of the guilt, and to walk in this new life that Christ has given us. Paul calls us to take off the old heritage. Like dirty laundry, to take off the old clothes and to put on the new clothes of the righteousness of Christ. To leave behind the darkened understanding to leave behind the alienation from God, to leave behind the ignorance and to leave behind the hardness of heart, to leave behind the sensuality and the greedy practices of all these things, to leave behind what we used to be and to walk in the new life and to put on the new clothes that Jesus has given us, to walk in the righteousness of Christ and in the likeness of God. And this may seem like a very insurmountable thing, You may sit there right now like I'm thinking as I'm reading this passage. You may think, you don't know. You don't know who I am. You don't know what I've done. There's no way that it's this easy. Surely I have to go through some kind of process. Surely I have to go through some kind of refining. Surely I have to go through some kind of penance. But Paul tells us it's just as simple as taking off what's behind and putting on what's new. Trusting our identity in Christ and walking in that as Jesus grows us and raises us into who we're supposed to be. All of this is possible because of Jesus and his work on the cross and his resurrection. Because we've been born again and washed clean and given a new identity. And so the door to Christian maturity is open to every single one of us because Christ has opened that door. The path to Christian maturity is laid because Jesus walked that path first. And all we have to do is walk in the footprints, is to walk in the steps that Christ has laid before us and to put on the clothes that Jesus has given us of righteousness and holiness that we didn't earn or that we didn't create, but that he gave to us freely. Now this starts with trusting in the gospel. This starts with what Jesus said of being born again. 
And so if you're here and you've never trusted in Christ for salvation, then in, Je- in John chapter 3, as Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, John gives us some editorial in John chapter 3, verse 16, and tells us how this is possible. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and that whoever believes in him won't perish but will have everlasting life. Paul tells us that while we were dead in our sins and trespasses, and while there was nothing that we could do to earn the favor of God, God, being rich in love and mercy and the kindness that he has for us, gave Christ. And that through the death and resurrection of Christ, when we trust in Jesus for salvation, we can be made alive. And the good news of that is that it's a gift. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter your background or your history. There is no sin too great There's no past too large that it can't be forgiven and resolved by the work of Christ on the cross. And so if you've never trusted in Christ for salvation before, if you've never been through the waters of baptism, if you've never been baptized, then I want to encourage you at the end of the service at any point in time from now until we leave or even past that to talk with me, to talk with Pastor Adam or Pastor David about what it means to trust in Christ for salvation and what it means to be baptized and how that radically changes everything about who you are because that's where it begins. By receiving the free gift of life from Christ that Jesus bought for us through his death on the cross and sealed for us in his resurrection. And the Bible says that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That anyone who trusts in the power of Christ is a new creation, and in an instant, the old is past and the new has come, and we're made whole through Christ and given the ability to start walking in this new life. If you're here and you trust in Christ for salvation, whether you've been a Christian for five minutes or 50 years, there is growth to be accomplished. There is more room to grow. There is deeper than we can go in the knowledge of Christ and in the truth of God's word. And so let each and every one of us individually make a commitment to passionately pursue maturity in Christ, not only for our own good, but for the sake of the church. To remember that as each and every one of us grow, we raise the body of Christ with us and we build the body of Christ with us. And so as you are equipped and as you serve and as you grow in faith and as you grow in your love for Christ and your love for your brothers and sisters, remember as you do that, God will use your small piece of this very large puzzle to strengthen the body, to lift up the body of Christ, to build up your brothers and sisters in Christ until one day we'll have this unity of the faith when Christ comes and makes all things new and we will be perfect with Christ for all of eternity. Until then, each and every one of us have work to do. And so let's read let's study, let's pray, let's worship, let's serve, let's go and reach out to the least of these and to love our neighbors as ourselves and let's do all of that inside the context of the church of Jesus Christ. And as the church strengthens us and we strengthen the church, we will find something incredibly beautiful coming out of that as we reflect the glory of God, not only in this building, but everywhere that we go as we see people radically changed by the grace and mercy of God and grown up to new life in this beautiful gift that God has given us in the body of Christ inside of the church.